So with that foundation, it should be easier for me to exhort you to our theme this morning, which is we must utilize prayer as a weapon in the advance of the gospel. If we believe the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, then praying to him for his help in the advance of the kingdom should make good sense to us. And so by faith, let's believe what Revelation tells us about that certain day that is coming. Our story begins with this historical figure, Herod. This is the third Herod that you know of, all right? The first one is Herod the Great, who was the ruler when Jesus was born. The one who issues the decree to kill all the babies under two years old in the Bethlehem region. That's the first Herod we encounter. But we also know Herod the Great, uh, or, or Herod the Great, who was the ruler Jesus was born. Herod Antipas was the son of that Herod. He was the Herod who was in charge when Jesus is ministering in Jerusalem and in Galilee. It is Herod Antipas who kills John the Baptist. It is this Herod who interviews Jesus before his crucifixion. Now we're years later, and the grandson of the first Herod, nephew of the second one, Herod Agrippa I, is ruler in Israel. He's a Roman appointee, as the other Herods are, and like the other Herods, his success is found in keeping the Jewish religious crowd happy. So that background is helpful to understand then what we read in the text, that his arrest and execution of James pleased the Jews. This is what Herods do. They simply please the most influential part of their constituency because if they don't keep the peace, in Rome's eyes, they're not doing a good job and they will be out. Their hope of luxurious living as a ruler in Israel under Rome is to make the Jewish people happy. And so that's what we find in our text. This Herod has arrested James. He then kills him. This James is the brother of John. These are the fishermen who were known as the sons of thunder. They were some of the most intimate disciples of Jesus, leaders in this fledgling church, and now James has been executed, the first of the disciples to suffer death at the hands of their enemies. Now, we see verse, in verse 17, another James is mentioned when Peter says to give this story of his rescue to James and to the brothers. Well, that James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's an unbeliever until after the resurrection, we're told. But he comes to faith in Jesus Christ, who was also his half-brother through their mother Mary. And he has become now, a decade later, one of the leaders in the church. We'll see him in a couple more chapters in the book of Acts. So keep all of our characters straight in our story. James the disciple is executed. James the brother of Jesus is still serving in the church. The killing of James goes over well with the Jewish establishment who hate Jesus of Nazareth and the followers of the way. 
And so Herod arrests Peter as well with the intent of killing him. However, there is a slight delay because we have just entered into the Passover, which is followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so for a whole week now, Herod is willing to wait, leave Peter in prison, and he will execute him after that Jewish holiday, which would please the Jews. Peter's imprisoned with this regular rotation of guards. We see that in verse 4. Four squads of soldiers assigned to rescue one man, or to, to watch one man who's chained up in prison. Seems a little bit of overkill, except that it wasn't too long ago. We studied back in chapters 4 and 5 when the disciples first have their run-in with the authorities, and Peter was thrown into prison, and when they went to get him, chapter 5, verse 22 tells us, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And they had no idea where the disciples had gone, where they had vanished to, until they heard word that they were back on the Temple Mount preaching this message, the good news of Christ. So we should not be surprised that there's a little extra attention given to this one man in prison. But then we're told the church is praying in verse 5, and as the church prays, an angel from the Lord walks Peter right out of this prison. Nothing short of miraculous. Chains are falling off. Guards are staying asleep. Iron gates of the city opening on their own accord, it says. And Peter walks right out of the prison on the very eve of his execution and kind of comes to a full understanding of that out in the street. He thought he was surely imagining this. On the very night, the eve of his execution, he manages to sleep, but imagined he, he must be having some kind of vision, and yet when he gets outside in the fresh air and he's standing on a street, he realizes exactly what had happened. And he has a little bit of a thanksgiving service right there. Surely it's true, the Lord has rescued me. Well, he goes and knocks on the door of a friend's home, probably the home that had the upper room from Acts chapter 1. It's the home of John, or John Mark as we know him. We'll see him later in the New Testament story as well. Seems to be from a wealthy home, a big house where the church is gathered and they're praying. Peter's knocking at the door. The servant girl hears his voice, and rather than letting him in, she's so excited she runs back to tell them Peter has been rescued. And those mature saints who were steadfast in prayer for Peter's deliverance are told that Peter has been delivered, and they say, no, that's impossible because Peter is in prison. Um, and they don't believe her. And it takes a little while before anybody is wondering, what's that knocking sound? And they finally let Peter in. And he describes to them, after telling them all to be quiet, after all, he's now a fugitive from Jewish law, sneaking through the towns at night, and we see from the text, he's going to keep moving on. He's not going to invite any further 
uh, persecution or imprisonment. So he silences them. Let's keep it down a little. He tells them the story with all of its miraculous nature and its kind of uniqueness. Here's this angel telling them to get up and get dressed and put your coat on. It's cold out there and mothering them all the way out the gates. And they hear of this miraculous answer to prayer. Peter moves on to another place, and we're even given a little bit of narrative detail about the consequence to those soldiers who let their prisoner escape. All this story unfolds in the midst of the book of Acts, which you remember is unfolding for us the advance of the kingdom. Jesus had told his disciples that when he departs, they would become his witnesses in all the corners of the earth. And Acts unfolds that story. But we have this kind of zoomed-in account of this story of Peter being rescued from prison. And the, the great theme of the story is not that every believer that gets thrown in prison will be rescued by an angel. The theme of the story is prayer is one of our weapons to be used in the advance of the kingdom. Up until now, it's been pretty clear that the advance of the kingdom is often, most often, through the Spirit's work in witnesses, followers of Jesus, who spread the good news. However, there are times when we come up against opposition that we have no power to overthrow. The, the Christians could not band together or even come up with enough weapons to overthrow this fortress of Antonio that was there in Jerusalem as part of the city of David. This Roman garrison and the Jewish police would have been far too much of an army. There is no hope of rescuing Peter, as there was no hope in rescuing James. But what we're being taught here is that the kingdom doesn't advance with swords and shields. Peter had to learn that when he whipped out a machete and hacked off Malchus's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus had to tell him, no, that's not the way the kingdom's progressing from this point on. We must utilize prayer as a weapon for the advance of the kingdom. While the theme of the story is this role of prayer in the advance of the kingdom, I don't want us to miss the fact that the story itself is an illustration of the advance of the kingdom. In the story, we see Peter's condition change from darkness to light. We see his condition change from being in chains to being free. His condition changes from being naked as a prisoner to being dressed. And not only dressed, but then robed. And we see him go from being as good as dead, the eve of his execution, to continued life. And all of these are illustrations of the power of the gospel to transform the condition of sinners in unbelief and bring them to saints who are rooted in their faith in Christ. It was Charles Wesley who wrote, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast 
bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I rose, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, and my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Wesley loved this story, and he saw in it the very gospel transformation, the advance of the kingdom in one heart at a time. So we have an illustration of the advance of the kingdom. Then we step back and we see prayer as a tool in this advancing of the kingdom. Peter's rescue is brought about by prayer. So what does this text show us about kingdom advancing prayer? Because we've admonished you for weeks now to advance the kingdom with your works and with your words. That's what it means to be a witness. And some of you may be better at that than others. Others are still figuring it out and trying to grow into a fuller obedience. But this morning's challenge is something that all of us should readily embrace as well within our skill set. Because this doesn't require us to speak in public, to engage personally, which admittedly some are not good at. You're more introverted, and and we know that. But this morning we can set all that aside because obedience this morning requires nothing more than you committing to some time before God to plead for gospel success around the globe to plead for gospel success for people in this church, for children in our families, longing for the name of Jesus Christ to be known and cherished more than it is today. What does this text show us about kingdom advancing prayer? Really, out of this whole story, we're looking at verse 5. And I want to show you five characteristics of kingdom advancing prayer. In verse 5, we read, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Number one, kingdom advancing prayer is combative. Think the word combat And we're making it an adjective. Combative prayer. Prayer that fights. Prayer that wars. It's combative. I take this from the one little word, but. But. It's a word of contrast. You're learning this, so what do we do? We look at the before and the after to see what is different, what has changed. What is before? Violent hands laid on those who belong to the church. Killed John with the sword. Arrested Peter. Put him in prison. Delivered him over. Intending to execute him. He's kept in prison. All that is before. Then our word, but. And what comes after? Prayer was made for him. So violent hands... The Roman ruler, Herod, violently throwing someone in prison and keeping him there. But 
So kept in prison, but prayer. That's our stark contrast. The keeping in prison held here and the snatching away from prison, the prayer. This demonstrates the adversarial nature of our praying. We are not just asking for sweet blessings, a good day and it won't rain on our picnic and and all the things that maybe we should pray about, but we don't find them in Scripture as, hey, pray this way. When we're told to pray this way in Scripture, it's having armed yourself with all the armor that God provides in verse 6. There's this phrase at the end of dressing in the armor, and it says, praying in everything. Because having all that armor is great. What do you do now? You war in that armor, and you do that in prayer. Prayer is adversarial. It is combative in its very nature. That's why the scriptures say we do not fight against flesh and blood. Malchus was not the problem in the Garden of Gethsemane. He needed the good news as much as anyone else did. The problem was spiritual wickedness in high places. There's where the battle rages. We we war in prayer. The question that arises as soon as we start getting into prayer and this combative nature in prayer, seeing something accomplished by our battling in prayer, the question is this, but why pray if God is sovereign? If the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns and he laughs at the nations that rebel against him, Psalm 2 tells us, if he's going to win his battle anyway, why pray? Well, there are multiple ways to answer that question that would warrant more time. But I simply want us to see from this text that God chooses to accomplish his will through means, through some kind of method or tool And the tool that God ordained to accomplish his end, which was Peter's deliverance, was the prayers of his church. So God ordains the end. We know that because the prophet tells us God knows the end from back at the beginning. How does he know the end? Because it says he ordained it all. And yet... The ordaining it all means that he has decided how we will get to those ends. He commands us to pray. And frankly, if that makes no sense to you at all, then just come back to the fact that Jesus is Lord. And when the Lord says pray, then you had best pray, whether you understand why you're doing it or not. So pray out of simple obedience to the sovereign Lord. Don't ask questions about his sovereignty while disobeying his sovereign command to pray. But if you really want to understand or begin understanding, then think of it. God ordains the ends, Peter's rescue, and the means, his praying church. It takes us back to that first point, that God has ordained the advance of the kingdom 
There's the great end, but he's also ordained the means of its advance, our witness. So the whole book of Acts is answering this question of, well, if God's going to do what he's going to do, why are we doing anything? Because he's invited us into this victorious march of the kingdom. And it marches us right through this life and the kingdom advance right on into heaven. So if you're not joining the march now of advancing the kingdom, don't expect to join that parade marching into heaven either. So that's why we cooperate with the sovereign God and his plan. Verse 5 continues. We've seen the contrast. Prison but prayer. But that prayer is described this way. Earnest prayer was made. The word earnest here is interesting. It means to, to stretch out. Maybe you had Stretch Armstrong in the 70s and 80s, you know, and stretched them out. Silly putty, Play-Doh. We know what it is to see something stretch a little bit. We used to like going to few minutes early to Papa John's to pick up our pizza and see them kneading the dough and stretching it and throwing it up in the air. We understand stretching. What we might not understand is how is prayer defined as stretched out, all right? Why does prayer, prayer described as stretched out prayer? Well, it's helpful to see that Luke uses this same word in both his gospel, the book of Luke, and elsewhere in Acts but he uses it to describe how somebody looks at something. He uses the verb to stare or to gaze at. So not just looked at, but stared at or gazed upon. So when you see somebody staring or gazing, we realize there's a duration of either time or there's this emphasis on intensity, the stare. So he's taking this word that really speaks more toward duration and intensity that well applies to how we look at something, and now he's saying that applies to prayer. Either in its duration or in its intensity, the church prayed. Kingdom advancing prayer is not only combative, but I would suggest that it's also quite focused. Focused. There's the, there's the setting aside of other things, and we need to pray about this. You could do this for a season. You're trying to consider a job change or a move or a building project, and it, it's good to take a season of prayer, focused prayer. Sometimes it's not the duration, it's the intensity, it's the urgency. You get the phone call, and you don't know what to do other than pray. Our brother described this when Matt was over there in India, and time is short, the the project was big, there's a lot to do, and hurdles were numerous. What do you do? You, you You just have to pray. It's focused prayer. It's about this. And again, I don't mean to diminish the conversational nature of so much of our praying, but at times we, we talk endlessly and we say the same thing over and over instead of just getting to the point. What do we need to happen? What are we asking God to do? Say that and move on. Focused, intentional prayer. This is all that matters right now. It's what's on the plate. We'll take this first. 
before the Lord and see what he wants to do. It's focused prayer. Prayer that was intense, perhaps prolonged. Peter's in prison and the holiday is clicking along, so he may have been there a good number of days and they set aside that holiday season to pray. Luke gave us that story of the persistent widow who kept pestering the unjust judge with her request. So I don't, I don't, I don't think he's forgotten that account when he's telling us, focus now, pray, stretch out your prayer, let it have some kind of duration. It's a call to faithfulness in our praying. Paul would add in his admonition to the Romans, rejoice in your hope. Be patient in tribulation. That's Acts 12. Be constant in prayer. So now we have earnest, stretched out, focused prayer. Paul adds constant in prayer. And he would say again in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. Let this always be hovering in the back of your mind. That issue that needs God's hand to work. Our kingdom advancing prayer should be stretched out, focused, persistent. Number three, kingdom advancing prayer is loving. Prayer was made, earnest prayer, for him. I suppose that would go without saying if you were telling the story. You could just say the church prayed. But the text is clear. The church prayed for Peter. For Peter. We call this kind of praying intercession. Coming in between. So we have God and his will that's being worked. And we have Peter and his chains hanging from his hands and feet. In between, we stand. The church and we're, we're trying to wrap our minds around what's going on in Peter's life. We're trying to wrap our minds around what's going on in God's will. And we're, we're asking and we're communicating on Peter's behalf. Prayer is one way to share the burden of those who are suffering. And so Paul would write in Colossians, remember those who are in chains. Not just, oh yeah, some Christians around the world have it harder than we do. No, it's intercede for them. It's a, it's a remembrance of thinking what that must be like and praying for what they might need. It's interesting, the prophet Samuel was being forced into retirement because Israel wanted a king and God was going to give him a king. And they were concerned about what Samuel would think of them and it seemed like this was kind of a sour ending, and it was because they were rebelling against God's prophet. But the prophet Samuel says in 1 Samuel 12, Moreover for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. God forbid that I should sin against God by ceasing to pray for you. You see, at times you sin by not praying for others. 
It's not just you're a good Christian for praying for others. There are times by not praying, you're sinning against that brother or sister and against God. The church prayed for him. They loved Peter. They had benefited from his ministry. They knew him as a friend. And they had already buried James. So this wasn't just we're praying for him, help him to get along okay. This was this focused, combative prayer on behalf of one who is facing execution. So let me ask you this. How would you have prayed for Peter? How would you have prayed for Peter if he were your friend or one of the teachers in your church and you knew this man? And let me say this, what if the person before you had already prayed for his deliverance? So that's off the table. You don't get that easy out. What would you pray for Peter in prison facing execution other than his deliverance? Because this is what we're not real good at. We, say, we would pray, Lord, would you, would you rescue Peter and would you, as if we're adding something else, would you free him from the, the prison be, and, and, and enable him to be free to minister? Listen, you're saying the same thing over and over again. What would you pray other than deliverance? What if that's not God's will? And you have to say, Lord, if it's your will, deliver him. But, and now you really start praying biblically. What would you pray? It, it shouldn't be too hard because we're praying for people all the time for their physical needs and all their, their burdens and, and the job, but we don't know what God's will is for that. So how will you pray from the Bible for that person's spiritual well-being without talking about debt and finance and physical health and rescue from prison? We have to get deeper in our praying. The church was praying for Peter but I don't think it was just that he would be rescued. They're praying for his soul. They're praying for faith. They're praying for him to trust God. They're praying for contentment. They're praying for more that would, that would represent his standing before God. What does he need? He might need sufficient grace. The Romans aren't real big on comfort levels. There's a reason why he has to get dressed before he leaves the prison. They didn't give him clothes. That's why we read in the crucifixion of Jesus. It's not a friendly scene. The Romans could care less about non-Romans. And so everything was as miserable as it could be, as humiliating, as painful, as shameful as it could be. So surely we can pray for Peter in more ways than just the one request deliver him from the jail. But that takes intercession. That takes stopping to think what is going on in the mind of one who has served the Lord faithfully and even boldly and now looks like is going to suffer the consequence of execution for it. Maybe we would be praying for him because we know even John the Baptist struggled facing execution. Lord, are you really the one? Am I throwing my life away or are you the one? I want to know this. What is Peter thinking in jail? See, we pray for him now because we love him and we know the struggle. The struggle of faith, the spiritual battle that's raging. 
It's loving prayer that goes beyond surface and simple words and gets down to the depths of how do I pray Colossians 1 with all that God wants for his church in that paragraph for Peter in prison? We need to learn how to pray this kind of kingdom advancing prayer. Perhaps your love for somebody this week will be expressed in thoughtful, biblically-rooted prayer requests this week. Now we consider what it means to pray in faith. As we see, number four, that kingdom-advancing prayer is trusting. It is trusting prayer. Again, you can read verse 5 and we have to ask ourselves, do we really need the two words, to God, in a prayer on behalf of Peter by the church? Wouldn't this, would this not be assumed that prayer was made for him to God? We're not expecting these people to be praying to some Roman eagle or some god of the Greeks. no. Probably not the old Philistine gods. We kind of know they're praying to God, but why are we told with such emphasis that prayer, earnest prayer, was made for him to God? You see, it requires us to think. We need to be asking the question who is this God to whom they were praying? The words to God are not just distinguishing God from idols, not just some directional kind of phrase. Of course they prayed to God. What is that telling us? It's telling us that they were calling to mind all that they knew of God, all that he had revealed about himself, his name, his character, his past exploits on behalf of his people. And they were bringing all of that to bear on this situation as they prayed. When we pray, we are right not just to rattle off requests, but to highlight the character of God. Because Jesus taught us in his model prayer, pray this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. First, let me wrap my mind around the direction of this prayer. Who is it going to? They prayed to God. But this trusting kind of prayer can be challenging. So think on these two ideas that I'm going to give you in your notes and find a way to merge them together. All right? Number one, remember this. They were praying to the God whose will included the death of James. That's a challenge now to verse 5. They prayed to God on behalf of Peter. But don't you think they prayed the same prayer for James? So, how might you have felt if you had prayed for James' rescue and verse 2 was the result? He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now he arrests Peter, and you get the email. We're going to gather for prayer at John Mark's mom's house. We're going to pray for deliverance. What are you going to be tempted to think? 
some good that does. Because you just stood at a funeral for another beloved teacher and friend. But somehow this prayer of faith means that we don't have all the answers. We don't even have the blueprint of the main plan. We're only told the next step. Some generals off at the Pentagon are scheming on the plan, but they're just issuing orders down the lines of command. Don't think every soldier storming the beaches of Normandy knew exactly how everything was unfolding. They had their little piece of obedience, of war. And so it is here. They are trusting a God who they have to believe has all of this in his control. They pray for deliverance and they could do it wholeheartedly and with expectation that God would be good to do so even though that was not his will for James. William Cooper, in the 1700s, a contemporary of John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, Cooper himself, a prolific hymn writer, and a prolific struggler in faith. Spent more adult life institutionalized for mental illness than he did outside of institutions. But he wrestled deeply with faith. And he wrote this, deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. In these minds to be explored deep and unfathomable is the will of God that we will never fully comprehend. But we must trust that he is working his sovereign will. That poem goes on to say, that familiar phrase, he works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. God is not absent in verse 3 and suddenly present in the following paragraph. God was working his unfathomable sovereign will in the death of James and in the rescue of Peter. Praying in faith is not easy because our eyes will see and our minds will weigh and comprehend and measure and feel real pain. And yet we trust. They prayed to a God whose will included the death of James but we can also see they were praying to the God whose power would accomplish the deliverance of Peter. God was not limited by Herod's prison, by multiple chains. He was not limited by four sets of soldiers, some chained to Peter, some standing at the gate. God was not limited by the iron gates outside. He gave them a nod and they opened by themselves. Just like rocks will cry out, so will gates open when God gives them the word. God was not limited in any way. Nothing in this story set God back. It was simply describing the foolishness of rebel kings and nations. 
This very story is what it means in Psalm 2 for God to laugh at, at the opposition, those who think they will oppose God's will and thwart it. They cannot. We are praying to a God whose will we may not understand, but we are praying to a God whose power works on our behalf. He is looking, the scriptures say, in multiple times, occasions to show himself strong on our behalf. God was looking for this opportunity to show his church something about the power of prayer. So pray in faith. In our praying, we are seeking God's way, his best plan for advancing the kingdom for his glory. That meant In the early part of chapter 12, the death of James for the glory of God, for the explosion of the church. And just a few days later, it meant the rescue of Peter. Vastly different in their answers, yet surprisingly the same in their purpose. The glory of God, the growth of the church, and the good of those individuals. This is what it means to pray in faith or in Jesus' name. It means we don't even know what we're asking for sometimes. God doesn't fault us for that, but he does call us to be constantly yielded. So there's no fault in praying for someone to get well. That's that's the best we can think. Oh, we should add to that, praying for their faith and their confidence in God and all those things. But... That's reasonable to pray for what we think are are good things. But pray in faith so that you're not appalled at the nerve of God to do something different. Because if we're not careful, that will be our response. And if you say, "I, I wouldn't think that, well, then I would ask you that I'm sure you've prayed very much this week in full faith, trusting God. But the fact is we are not much of a people of prayer. And this text is saying, in the advance of the kingdom, it's a weapon that you cannot neglect. We pray in faith. Finally, see that kingdom advancing prayer is unifying prayer. Prayer, earnest prayer, was made for him to God by the church. By the church. When we share our needs... And then share our faith in the God who we're looking to to meet those needs. Therein we find unity. And if our concern is seeking first the kingdom of God, then there should be the essential unity that the church needs. Oh, we may not find unity on every application of the word, to every standard in our families, to every stroke of liturgy, the way we do things compared to the way other churches do things. But that's not the essentials of unity. If we are unified around the grandest themes first, the kingdom of God and its advance, then we recognize common needs because they all reflect how that advance will take place. So share your need and let someone share with you their faith in the God who can meet that need. That's unifying. That's relationship building. That's the glue that holds the church together. Jesus taught us this unifying prayer in his model when he prayed to the Father saying, your kingdom come, 
your will be done. It's not the agenda of you and your family or us and our church, our missionaries. It's God's agenda. And so we should find unity all over the city with those who preach the gospel. All over the world who are sharing the name of Christ. Well, what if they're, what if they're a little you know, different than we are? What if they're a little more charismatic or something? Well, let's find out if we agree on the essentials of Jesus Christ and the gospel to save sinners and recognize the kingdom's advance through a whole host of imperfect people like these people who prayed that God would deliver, and when he did, they said, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Must be his ghost, his angel. No, it wasn't. It was Peter. Why wouldn't you believe that? Because they're not perfect either. And your praying won't be perfect this week. But the call isn't to perfect praying. The call is to just pray for the advance of the kingdom. And in doing so, find unity in that. Because the kingdom advance may be in the way you're parenting your kids. So when your small group gathers and prays for that parenting struggle, remember, that's in the context of the kingdom's advance. We want those little ones to be foot soldiers in this battle. Pray for others' marriages because they picture the love of Christ for his church. So if your marriage shines brightly, the kingdom is getting credit for that. Pray for the salvation of others. By praying for the gospel to advance in the hearts of people you know need salvation, God may be using that very prayer to stir up in you the witness that you should have. Pray for world missions. Pray for the churches in our community. And let us find our unity not in every application and every conviction or standard that we hold to. But let us find unity first in seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's a great story. Peter goes on to years of fruitful ministry, but in the will of God, we're told from John chapter 21, he would suffer a similar fate that Jesus himself suffered. Death on a cross. Tradition says upside down. History seems to validate that. So Peter's escape is only temporary. His his home going was delayed a little bit. God had more for him to do. And as God gives us time this week, he has more for us to do. And it's not to be time frittered away while we neglect this weapon of prayer, kingdom advancing prayer. Pray this week. Pray against the evil you see. You're going to see it. You're going to see it in the news stories. You're going to see it in the real lives of people. Well, pray. Pray combatively. Pray adversarially this week. Pray with a sense of indignation. Pray light into the darkness. Pray with a sense that something is at stake here. Pray against evil. Pray for this church. Pray for its people. 
pray in faith to our all-wise, all-powerful Heavenly Father. Lord, we have heard your word. We see it before us. We see it summon us to a life of prayer. To put on the armor of the Lord and having done all to stand, to stand therefore. Praying always. Lord, forgive us for neglecting this weapon. We take it up this week to advance your kingdom in faith. Teach us to pray. Increase our faith as we war against the darkness and trust your good and perfect plan. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen.